from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. And I'm Leonita Inge. When you stop during a road trip, it's to fill up the tank, use the restroom, maybe stop for a little snack. Soda, chips, M&Ms. Pig feet, boiled eggs. (laughs) But I'm sure some of our listeners know that the American South is home to a more advanced style of gas station cuisine. That's it. Just the water. 85. 85. Oops. Photographer Kate Medley knew that restaurants at gas stations were common while growing up in Mississippi, but what she didn't know until she left the Magnolia State was just how unique and integral they are to life in the South. Well, Kate spent a decade taking photos across the region as a freelance um, photographer for the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, and yes, she's even been on assignment with me on North Carolina Public Radio. Kate Medley has a new book out. It's called Thank You, Please Come Again, How Gas Stations Feed and Fuel the American South. Kate, welcome to Do South. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Leonita. You know, you've been visiting these service stations all your life and working on this project, this book for years. Where did the concept for this book come from? You know, I grew up in Mississippi eating at gas stations as a kid um, for people who have for people who come from rural areas, you, you thought know, that was normal. That's what everybody does, right? That is what everybody does, yes. Leonita, right? <laughs> um, you know, gas stations tend to be these gathering spots for the community, um, whether you're going there to fuel up your car or to check your mail, um, for many people to eat lunch um, or just find community. And when I left Mississippi, it became clear to me that um, this is unique to not just Mississippi, but to the greater South. Um, You find it all over North Carolina as well. So this exploration took me to um, 11 states across the deep South. And um, it really explores, you know, these spaces as community gathering spots. And I can attest from someone who is not from the South, you come to the South, there's a different vibe, there's a different energy. There's a lot of different options uh, at some of these service stations and gas stations in the South relative to much of what you see in the the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. I want you, Kate, if you were to take us back with you on one of your stops. What were you driving? Were there any companions with you? And when you stopped at these gas stations, what did a typical stop look like? Oh, that's a good question, Jeff. Um, Well, typically I'm driving my own car, which is a little bit of a jalopy. But when I flew down to New Orleans to do some reporting for the book, the only car left on the lot was a convertible. Nice. So I took off into rural Louisiana driving my um, silver convertible. And, you know, I'd pull up to some of these gas stations. Many that I visited in Louisiana were immigrant-owned. Um, So, for instance, one in New Orleans that I visited was run by um, Abash al-Sharis, who is an Iraqi refugee. Abbas and his wife opened Shawarma on the Go in New Orleans on Magazine Street about 15 years ago, where they're selling, you know, they are roasting their own meats um, and, and selling food of 
Abbas's, you know, Iraqi family's heritage. Um, and you see all sorts of folks coming through there. You see college kids all the way up to retirees and, and people are, are hanging out and, you know, they, Abbas is sharing the food of his youth. Um, some of which, you know, he has sort of melded to, to fit a, a New Orleans palate. Um, but he's, he's bringing that story of where he comes from to the middle of New Orleans. A post-Katrina Iraqi refugee, Iraqi migrant, serving shawarma on Magazine Street in New Orleans. If that's not a due south vignette, I don't know what it is. Take it away, partner. <laughs> I know. And, and it, so really, I, when I look at the book, you know, the big, beautiful pictures, I'm like, all the people look different. First of all, most of them I notice are people of color. And um, they still look very different, but the same, no matter what their nationality or, or race is. It's like they're just about the work. That's what they do. They're about the food and probably just trying to keep the business open. So tell us about the people. Yeah, my goal in this project was really to tell the story of a increasingly diverse South. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to tell the story of the old South, of um, a uniform South. When I look around the South, I increasingly see a global South. Um, in researching this project, more than 60% of gas stations in the United States are owned by immigrants. Um, and so when I set out along the rural roads and in the cities of the South, I really wanted to investigate um, you know, was there a way to chart the growth of the South by way of what's being served in the back of gas stations? Um, you know, who's running the register? What's on the menu? Who's manning the grill? What are people talking about? There, there are multiple stories to tell for sure. Um, in more rural parts of the South, a lot of these gas stations are serving food that is very utilitarian. You know, they cannot afford not to be selling fried chicken and potato logs and hamburgers because, you know, they are trying to survive and they have to keep, you know, workers fed. They have to do it inexpensively. Um, in more urban areas, I found more flexibility to try new things. And so you do see more global cuisines and you see, you see an increasingly international population in the South. You're listening to Do South here on WNC. Leonita and I are speaking with photographer Kate Medley about her new book that documents gas station food across the South. It's titled Thank You, Please Come Again, How Gas Stations Feed and Fuel the American South. You know, Kate, in the, the opening essay in your book, um, you write, New Yorkers have bodega culture. In the South, we have gas stations. Um, explain that. That's just a given because I've lived in both places and um, I see the similarities, but I also see the differences. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that every culture has this gathering spot. Um, and when I drive across, you know, the Mississippi Delta, for instance, in some spaces, you know, a gas station is the only commercial entity for 30 miles. This gas station, it has to be everything for everybody. It has to be where you can get your live bait and your ammunition and your burger. Um, and, and again, you find, you know, people hanging out in these spots. They, you know, some of them become the old juke joint, for instance. You see mm. pool tables in the back. You see happy hour happening on the front porch. Um, this is truly where people come to find community. 
So in our conversation here, I am imagining these different places. But for me, as I'm imagining them, it is daylight everywhere. I think in most of your pictures that I looked, I've looked at your book. It is a beautiful composition. Thank you. What I've looked at, I feel like most of the pictures are during the day. Talk to me at all about nighttime. Did you make visits at night? Are these after hour joints or not so much? Jeff, I'm an early to bed type. Fair enough. Um, which is why most of them are in the day. Uh, you know, a lot of them, I think, are early morning spots. Some of these places, they are up at 5 a.m. to meet the hunting crowd, for instance. This is where you go and you get your sausage biscuit as you hit the woods. Um, but then, you know, there's a place in here in Florida, Chapini's. It's an old Italian place in Melrose, Florida. And it really lights up around 5, 6 p.m. as people are getting off of work. I mean, you can go there and you can get your gas. You can get your groceries. You can borrow a book from the lending library. But most people are there to have a cold one. And it it gets pretty lively. Um, there's a lot of taxidermy on the walls. There's a lot of conversation flowing. There is an old ledger where, you know, you get your beer and he puts it on the ledger and you settle up at the end of the month. Um, it, it seems like it's been there for a hundred years. Uh, and it seems like the people may have been in there for a hundred years. I, I want you to go next level for us, please. Are, are we talking about in Abita in New Orleans? Are we talking about a Budweiser, wherever you are? Is there, is there something maybe a little stronger underneath the counter? What, what, what exactly are people drinking at five or six o'clock? At Chapini's, they're drinking some Bud Light, some High Life, some Miller Light. They're keeping it pretty utilitarian, gotta say. Okay. Well, I would like to know if a lot of these places are even thriving still, are they still open? Because I looked through the whole book, I was looking at every picture, and I saw places where I've been. My parents were born in Pritchard, Alabama. As soon as I saw it, I took a picture with my camera, and then I sent it to my sister and sent it. They were like, oh, they were like, you know, Big White isn't open anymore. I was like, oh. But we used to um, go, they all went there for his stupid fries. You know, so that was a favorite. I think I had the stupid fries. Did you have the stupid fries? <laughs> um, you bring up a great point, Leonita. A lot of these places are sort of liminal in nature. They are remaining flexible to suit the needs of the communities that they're serving. So, you know, I try to make very clear that this book is not a guidebook. Please do not try to retrace my steps when I have done that. Um, it is only to limited success because some of these places close. They change ownership. They change their, you know, point of business. Um, and and that is just the nature of the, of the places. I recently tried to visit, revisit a place in Durham um, that used to be Cozart's Fruit and Produce. Um, it was this gorgeous um, African-American-owned produce stand that used to serve gas, but was had hand-painted signs out front and was overflowing with produce. And when I drove out Cheek Road recently to find it, I drove down and I drove back. And then I finally looked up the address. And Cozart's is no more. Instead, it's this sort of building of a purple hue that's now called Deja Vu Sports Club. <laughs> so you just never know. You never know. I, I know precisely the place you're, you're talking about. I've driven by that many times. We're chatting here on Due South with Kate Medley, the author of a new book about gas stations and service stations across the American South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. And I'm Leonida Inge. Later this hour, we'll speak with van lifers, a couple that has made their life and career traveling. Hmm. And as a queer couple, they've made lists of where it's safe to park a van. 
or to get a drink, including in their home base of Asheville, North Carolina. That's coming up in a bit. Right now, we're going to continue our conversation with North Carolina photographer Kate Medley, whose work as a freelance photojournalist has taken her across the South time and time again. She has a new book out, and it is a photographic road trip of sorts. It documents gas stations, service stations, and their food and the way some of these rural outposts serve as social gathering places. And Kate Mitley actually shared some audio she recorded at one of um, those gas station restaurants for us. Hamburger steak, yes, sir. It's going to be for here to go. Okay. So you're doing hamburger steak with your two sides. Uh, I can do you white beans and you get one more. I got peas and carrots, coleslaw, peach cobbler. Oh, food. I, I, Where I, was that, Kate? <laughs> um, that was down in Louisiana, in rural Louisiana, at a place called um, Billio's 2. I was like, Kate, where were you? Because, you know, the peach cobbler got me. Like, who has time at a gas station to cook peach cobbler? Um, Leonita, we got, we got to get you down to New Iberia, Louisiana. I where know. They're, they're dishing out some good peach cobbler. So of all these gas stations where you've eaten... And hopefully you had, you didn't just take pictures. You actually I ate, ate it all. You Thank you. Good. Good. That's, so that's what's good what's the best that you've had? You think? Um, you know, I get asked that a lot, and I got to be honest. For me, though, this is a narrative about food. At its core, it's really more about the people. Um, I did try to eat everything that I photographed. Um, to me, when I go into a space that's not my own, and someone offers me food. Um, you know, regardless of how many meals I've had that day, I'm going to say yes. Yes, and please and thank you. Please and thank you, exactly. Um, so I tried everything um, and had some really outstanding food. I had some Senegalese food in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, I had a Cajun shrimp banh mi in Louisiana. Uh, in Raleigh, I had some outstanding tacos. I had so many outstanding tacos throughout the South. Well, you don't have to name names. What's a memorably not-so-good meal or item that you had? Jeff, that's not what it's about. <laughs> All right. I had to ask. This is a celebration, not yeah. a takedown. I know. Right. I, I mean, me, I've been to places, place. it, you know, sometimes the fries will fry too hard. Well, there's no such thing as bad French fries. Well, well they, you know, if the biscuits be, but aren't... You don't say anything. You just keep crunching. If the biscuits haven't been made in the last 12 minutes, I think that's the Biscuitville rule mm. that I, I abide <laughs> by that. I like that. You got you to gotta toss them after, after too long. Well, we heard, I think the quote there was a steak burger. Uh everybody has their own personal preference. What's like, what's your go-to? What do you most often have a hankering for as you pull into one of these stations? Um, like I said, there are a lot of great taquerias that are popping up in the backs of gas stations all over the South, the rural South, the urban South. Um, and I'll never turn down a, a good taco. Um, you know, there's tons of fried chicken to be had and, you know, boiled peanuts in a pinch. They'll, they'll get you across some mileage in the South for sure. Oh, wow. Boiled peanuts are the best. I don't know why you're ignoring all those pink jars of pig feet. <laughs> I mean, I, I put it out why. there. I haven't heard you mention that. Leonita, let's get in the car together. and I'll, We'll go on pig feet tour. <laughs> I know. I, I like those boiled eggs. So I heard there was a gas station um, that you, you stopped there. It's in North Carolina. And it was before you realized that you should really start documenting these gas stations everywhere you went. So what really got you interested? Um, one of the first places that I became a regular stopping at in North Carolina was up near Hurdle Mills, uh, a few miles north of Hillsborough, called 
the farm and garden. I would drive up 86 and start seeing those cascading signs, those hand-painted signs that talk about, you know, not only just the fresh vegetables and the jellies, which you sort of see a lot of, but then they talk about, you know, local beer, organic meat, hoop cheese, live bait. And with each sign, I just found myself more and more lured in whether I needed gas or not. I wanted to stop and see what was going on at the farm and garden. And inevitably, you know, whether it was nine in the morning or two in the afternoon or 6 p.m., there was a crowd that was gathering. Um, again, not for the gas. This, this book is not really about gas and it's not really about food. Um, it is more about who's gathering there, what are they talking about, um, and, and who are the, how are these spaces reflective of the communities that they serve. And so the farm and garden north of, north of Hillsboro, um, it, it really became emblematic to me of what these spaces could be. You know, you see the cashier on her way in each morning. She stops at the Bojangles in town and brings sausage biscuits 20 miles north of town because the people 20 miles north of town otherwise can't get that. And so it's that resourcefulness to serve the communities that really intrigue me. And, and you talk about local. To me, it strikes me as, in some ways, the antithesis of, sorry to throw shade, a Circle K, a Speedway. It's, I mean, you got these big corporations, and then you still have, in many ways, the heart of the rural American South. And that's what, to an extent, these places embody. Absolutely. I mean, you walk into these places, Jeff, and you open that glass door and you hear that little bell jingle. And you, you don't ever quite know what you're going to get inside, whether you're going to be welcomed, whether someone's going to be stern, whether they're going to invite you to stay, have lunch, move along. Um, but again, that's sort of what intrigued me. Um, I, I wanted to explore how the South is shifting and its politics and its sort of socioeconomics, um, who's here and what are their priorities. And so, you know, I would look for indicators that something unique might be happening inside, often slam on the brakes, turn around, and behold that mystery. What will you find inside? Mm, you know, I drive across the South a lot, and um, if I see anything or signs leading up saying fresh this or whatever, I always stop. But I tell you, sometimes what I've seen over the years is that some things have gotten so expensive where you used to buy a bag of pecans, you know, and they're like, okay, that'll be $50. I was like, what? Food's expensive, I, Oh, my goodness. And I'm like, you know, because this is a delicacy, <laughs> you know, somebody wouldn't pick those for you. <laughs> That's for sure. And bag them for you. And, um, you know, you have to pay these families because it's mostly families. You know, right. you can see the kids, the grandkids, everybody, everybody there working. You know, one place I want to mention that would not be in your book when I would go to Greensboro from Durham a couple of times a week, I used to stop at this Travel America, <laughs> a big T.A. And, you know, all the truck drivers are there taking showers, resting. But that was, I think that was the only Popeyes in the state of North. I couldn't find any other Popeyes. So whenever I went to Greensboro, mm -hmm. I was like, you know, because if I grew up, you know, born in Mobile, Alabama, out Louisiana way, you know, that's Popeyes territory. You know, it's no Bojangles. We didn't even know what that was. Everyday families, truckers, construction workers would be lined up 
at that Popeye's as though it was just any other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some of these truck stops really have to be a second home for people. Like you said, that's that's where people not only do they eat there, but they shower there. They sleep there. I saw one recently in the holiday season where they would decorate your truck for you. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it has to it has to be your home away from home for sure. Um, you know, everyone in this book, when I showed up and explained what I was doing, they didn't all necessarily understand, but they all, to some extent, welcomed me to stick around for a while. And they all, to some extent, told me about their work and their people and their business. Um, and, and it's really a celebration of, of those people, for sure. Well, that's special. And um, that's why... They sat for their portrait <laughs> to, to be taken. Kate Medley is with us here on Due South chatting about her new book. It's titled, Thank You, Please Come Again, How Gas Stations Feed and Fuel the American South. I want to pull the curtain back. I'm going to step out of the way here. Uh, but you said something really interesting a moment ago when we were off air and you were talking about the uh, tiny number of black-owned gas stations in the country. Tell us what your research led you to, to learn and then teeing it up a little bit. I, I, Pritchard, Alabama. Take us there, please. So I went down to South Alabama, a, a land that Leonita knows well. Um, My daddy calls it when people will say, where are you from? He's like, I'm from L.A. And he would let them think Los Angeles for as long as they wanted to. And then he would say lower Alabama. <laughs> lower Alabama. Yes. It, we don't call it South Alabama, do we? <sighs> lower Alabama, L.A. L.A. I went down there. Uh, someone had suggested I check out a place called The Starch Down in Pritchard, Alabama. It, um, as its name may suggest, was an old dry cleaner that <clears throat> was a gas station, then a dry cleaner, and now a restaurant called The Starch Down, kept the name. Um, and it, it, there's a couple guys in there that are serving, among other things, as Leonita talked about <laughs> earlier, crazy fries. Yes. Very proudly. Stupid fries. Stupid fries. Yes. Um, and so I had a great meal at The Starch Down, and as I was leaving, um, one of the guys pulled me aside after hearing about this project and said, I can't let you leave Pritchard without going to visit Fred Eaton. And I piqued my interest. I said, tell me about Fred Eaton. He said, well, you know, go down to the stoplight, turn left, go down to the willow tree and turn right. And then, you know, pretty soon you'll be over at Fred Eaton's. And Fred is the center of this community. He is the mantle of this community. He opened Fred Eaton's service station in the 60s with six of his brothers. It remains a full-service, cash-only enterprise, and it is one of fewer than 50 Black-owned gas stations in the country, possibly the only Black-owned gas station in Alabama. Yes, that's what my brother-in-law says, because <laughs> they his family had a gas station, and they were kind of pushed out or maybe BP who used to sell them gas, you know, wanted more traffic, you know, that type of thing. And and that's how a lot of, you know, black families I know in that part of Alabama kind of lost their gas stations. Kate, you dropped this kind of astonishing figure that there are fewer than 50 owned black gas stations, not in Alabama, not in the South, in the country. Leonita, you start to touch on the why here uh, about uh, small business owners being maybe pushed out or frozen out, uh, big oil saying, no, nah, we're not going to sell you our gas. Can you expound on the why? Like that—that That is a, an astronomically small number, 50. That's one per state. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a tough business. A lot of the, most of the places that I visited are family owned um, and yet also affiliated with big oil. One of the things that was super intriguing to me about this business is that they are very resourceful. They are determined to survive. Um, we were talking about Fred Eaton. And, you know, in addition to being a full service mechanic and, you know, coming out and filling up your tank, they are also the gathering place for this community, this small community in lower Alabama. Um, when I was visiting there, there were four or five men sitting out front. And Fred Eaton was talking about, you know, how the preacher, he's retired now, but he comes and he sits out front and how, you know, it's, it's not church, but it's kind of like church because we're sitting out here with the preacher and we're, we're talking church. Um, and, and so, you know, this is, this is where these spaces are really filling the cup for the community. Uh, Fred Eaton is having voter drives at his yes. <laughs> at his gas station. Kate, Kate Medley is here with us on Due South. We're talking about Pritchard, Alabama. For those of you that don't know or have not ever been, is right outside of Mobile on the Gulf Coast, and uh, it's one of the many stops that Kate made uh, visiting service stations, gas stations across the South for her new book. Kate, within that book, you, you talk about this sense of place. There's a story in your book about a farmer who works diligently to keep a service station uh, open. Yeah, you're talking about Elaine, Arkansas. Um, so gas is an expensive business. It takes significant upfront capital to build these underground systems that keep the tanks running. So especially in some of the more economically depressed areas that I visited, they have either pulled out the tanks entirely or let them run dry. Um, and that is the case in Elaine, Arkansas. So this is a town that's right on the Mississippi River. Um, and it is largely an agricultural space. Uh, so when I stopped at Old Town Grocery and Tackle near Elaine, they have let the tanks run dry. Inside, you will find sort of minimal grocery amenities. When I was there, the woman running the register, Amanda Simonson, was also the cook and the general manager. So, you know, if you can imagine, she's back there cooking a burger, but when somebody needs to check out, she runs to the front. But then when somebody's ready to order some chicken tenders, she runs back to the back to check on those. She's really juggling a lot. Um, so anyway, when, when, Old Town, when Old Town Grocery and Tackle went up for sale several years ago, this farmer in town decided to buy it um, because he wanted the restaurant side. And, you know, if if Old Town closed, that was the only hot food for 30 miles and he needed to keep his farmhands fed. Um, so they run this mostly as a restaurant um, and they do a hot lunch each day to feed the farmhands and they open that to the public. And when I stopped in, they were having smothered pork chops that day. Yum. Right? Yes. <laughs> uh, and their slogan reads... We like our tea like we like our farmers. Sweet and strong. Sweet and strong. We've been chatting <laughs> with Kate Medley. She has a new book out. It's titled, Thank You, Please Come Again, How Gas Stations Feed and Fuel the American South. And Kate has been uh, regaling us with some of her stories and memories from uh, her efforts to compile the photographs and the tales that comprise that book. Kate Medley, thank you for joining us here on Do South. Thanks so much for having me, y'all. <laughs> Our next story started with a search for adventure. 
In 2016, Aaron McGrady and Caroline Watley started renovating a camper van. They made a blog to document it and created a following on Instagram. Van life, as it's known, has not only become more popular in their home base of Asheville, North Carolina, but really throughout the country. According to Statista, there were 3 million van lifers in America as of mid-2022. Along the way, McGrady and Watley had a lot of good times, but they also noticed the trips in places they didn't feel completely safe. As a queer couple on the road, they started to look for spaces where they'd be accepted. Aaron McGrady joins us from Asheville. Aaron, welcome to Do South. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Let's start with your love for the outdoors. Where does it come from? When did you know that you loved being in nature? Oh, wow. That, I can trace that back to my early beginnings. Um, I grew up on a small farm and uh, my parents had given me a goat when I was in third grade. And I remember taking that to show and tell and having it pee all over my arm. No. <laughs> but my friends thought it was so cool. And just, you know, being outside in nature was just something that was a part of my life from a, from a young age. And then um, I am a failed brownie. I could never make it through overnight camp. Um, what? But, Wait a minute. You live yeah. in a van and you couldn't survive overnight <laughs> camp. It doesn't pass the smell test. Oh, no. It's hard to believe. <laughs> I know. To think about it now, it seems really funny. But back then, I had some just real homesick issues with um, – I think it comes from being adopted, but I just couldn't stand to be away from my parents for more than a night. So I couldn't make it through Brownie and Girl Scout camp, but um, I did find my way back to the outdoors um, myself as an adult. And now I just uh, doing a lot of camping and traveling uh, ever since. Well, we know it's one thing to like something and another thing to sort of like just reshape your life. So what led you into this van life? Um, wow, that that's that goes back a, a ways. So I was a teacher for 10 years um, and in my summer vacations, which was a big motivating factor for becoming a teacher, um, I would pack up my little hatchback and just go on these road trips. Um, most of the time they were by myself and I would meet up with friends in different cities across the country. And um, I was just doing it in a small car. And then I started seeing things on the internet and being sucked down the rabbit hole and trying to learn more about different kinds of vehicles um, and just starting to learn more and more about van life. But um, when I met my wife, Caroline Watley, um, we didn't have a van, but we started looking into vehicles um, and it just kind of took off from there. We, our, our first van actually wasn't a van. It was a 1976 Toyota Sunline, which, uh, the insurance company called a house car. And, uh, that made it all up six miles down the road before we broke down. <laughs> um, but after that, we got into another vintage vehicle it was a 1978 Toyota Chinook, which had a pop-up rooftop camper, super cool looking. And that also died a fiery death. Mm. Um, after another road trip. So we started looking into actual vans at that point um, and got into a Ram Promaster. It was a 2018 uh, Ram Promaster City, just a smaller van. And um, and that was the vehicle of choice for several years. All right. I, I got all kinds of questions about the vehicles. <laughs> uh, but first, we got to pay the bills, remind the people what they're listening to. And we're going to have many more questions about the wheels that you've lived on here in just a moment. This is Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. I'm Leonita Inge. We're speaking with Erin McGrady, a blogger, writer, and videographer with Authentic Asheville. She has spent time documenting travel across the South in her camper van with her wife. All right, Erin, I need to pick up where we were just a couple of minutes ago. 
for context, Leonita drives a Ford Flex. I drive a Toyota Prius. I'm told, uh, I was told, and then you just mentioned it a moment ago, that you began rolling around in a Ram ProMaster City. What is that and what's inside of it? Um, it's just a small van. I, in, uh, it's probably what a lot of electricians drive around. And it's we've actually been mistaken for the electrician <laughs> a time or two when we've been parked out on, in, on a, you know, in front of someone's house. Or a um, kidnapper. But it's not the... <laughs> Yeah. Um, you definitely want to be aware of, um, what was I going to say? You're okay. You were called a kidnapper. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the person your parents warned you about. (laughs) Um, but no, it's not the kind of sexy vans that you see on Instagram or anything. It's not even one that you can stand up in. It's super small and, um, just very, very basic. Like it has a bed that falls down in the back. Um, and then there's a little tiny, compartment where you can store stuff and then there's kitchen boxes in the back that open up and uh, we just used a coleman stove for years back there with a little green uh fuel canister so very simple setup let's stick with the setup for a second i'm just for context i'm about six foot and i can get into most beds and be comfortable but every now and then i get into a bed and like it's not quite long enough for me uh Uh you said a small bed could you sleep well in this was it comfortable Talk to me about, Um, I have other questions about like cost and how the heck you did all this, but specific to sleeping, because that's really important. How did you sleep? Yeah. Yeah. I would have concerns for you being 6'4". You'd probably have to go diagonal. Oh, he's not 6'4". No, no, no. I I rushed through that. (laughs) Yeah, I did that. Six foot. I'm just, I'm six foot, not six foot. And I'm okay. five, ten. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even six foot would be a stretch. All right. So tell us a little bit about uh, the the vehicle. Like when it, when you got it, this Ram ProMaster City, was it ready to go or did you have to put in compartments and storage in the bed? Like was it a few hundred dollars? Was it a couple thousand dollars? What was that, that process like? Uh, no, we bought an empty cargo van. So it was basically just a shell. Um, and so much so that, you know, when you talked inside of it, you could kind of hear a, a reverb in the back because it was just so empty. Um, and driving, it was super noisy. But we were able to link up with a camper van conversion company out in Colorado. And so we drove the van all the way out. And in about an hour, they were they had put in this kit that is um, – it has a, a floor that's about a, an inch thick. It has some insulation panels that are hand sewed, and then it has these wooden boxes. That's pretty cool design where the the panels flip open, and when in the daytime when you're not sleeping, the bed sort of folds up into a seat, and then when it's time to go to bed, you just unfold the seat, and it becomes a, a larger bed. Um, but it doesn't have any of the bells and whistles. There's no sink. There's no bathroom. Um, there's no heater. There's no AC. So it's very very basic. Hmm. Well, tell me about. You know, your van life days in this van, because you definitely have not won me over. I do not plan on doing what you're doing for more than a weekend, probably. But what was your typical day like in this um, shell of a van? It was it was incredible. So much so that like every day was so unique that you never knew what you were going to get into or what kind of adventure was going to be waiting for you. Literally the moment you open the door, um, you know, one day we could be in a city and the next day in a national park. Um, and so the adventure was just like there for the taken. Um, we're big on maps and like to do a good bit of research before we go to places to see what might be there and then see whether or not it was actually as advertised. Um, so we often had a pretty good idea of what the day was going to look like in terms of where we were going to go or what we were going to eat. That's always one of my favorite things to do. Um, and what kind of queer friendly spaces we might find as well as cool trails and, uh, places to run. 
Erin McGrady is with us here on Due South. She's a blogger, a writer, and a videographer. She's created Authentic Asheville, and along with her wife, she has spent time traveling across the South in uh, her camper van. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the adventure, a little bit about the wackiness or the craziness. As you think back on a couple of years, I gather, of doing this, are, are there moments or nights or interactions that, that really stand out? Uh, yeah, I mean... Of course, there's always the incredible sunsets, but uh, one night in particular, we'd driven all the way into Marfa, Texas, which is a small artsy town, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And um, we'd gotten in really late and um, I'd gotten up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, which basically meant um, going outside and finding a bush somewhere to pee behind and basically toppling out of the van uh, into a bush, but looking up and realizing that there was like a meteor shower happening. Oh, wow. um, that was something that I wasn't expecting to see. But, you know, only if you're outside in the middle of the night would you see something like that. Um, and things like that just kind of happened all the time to where, you know, maybe you would be uh, on route to somewhere, say, I don't know, Savannah, Georgia. And on the way, you're able to pick up some really fresh fish at a, a roadside stand that you hadn't seen before, or you hadn't known about. Um, or someone on Instagram sends you a DM about a really cool um, gay bar or LGBTQ friendly space. And you make a stop there and you make a new friend. It's just uh, things like that that's just unexpected and unplanned that were really some of the highlights of doing van life. Leonita, you heard that part where she said she stumbled out of a van in the middle of the <laughs> night to go pee on a bush. I think that that didn't kill you either. <laughs> Now, you know, what I really is, as I try to wrap my head around this, what I've come to realize is that you are indeed a minimalist because, you know, I've traveled across the country in a vehicle and just over the Christmas, holiday, New Year's break, I traveled from North Carolina to Alabama. Mm -hmm. And everywhere I stop, either to use the bathroom or get gas or, hmm, look at that Crystal's Burger Shop. I buy something. It's a magnet. Uh -huh. I went to Cracker Barrel and bought an album and some some nuts, peanuts. And I will I buy something no matter how small or big. Just I cannot imagine all the junk I would have in this van. I mean, I, I mean, where do you so I guess you don't have to do that. You just or do, um, or do you have junk in your van? I mean junk in your no, truck, we as they say. <laughs> We made a rule a long time ago oh. that anything comes in the van has to have two purposes. So if it doesn't pass that rule, it's gonna, it's not gonna make it in there. But we take a lot of photos as memories. That's kind of how we think of our souvenirs. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know, this is a, a pretty serious question. When I think about you being a queer couple on the road, just starting to look for spaces where you would be accepted, how difficult was that, or, or was it easy? Uh, you know, people these days and business owners, they have realized that symbolism really holds a lot of weight. And if you are a queer person, particularly in the South, you know to look for the very small rainbow flag on the doorway of a business. Um, sometimes people advertise it online, which is really nice. Um, and, and word of mouth is really helpful, too. Um, and just being able to hear from a local like, hey, this is the spot to go. You know, people are willing to share about that once they realize um, that you're part of that community. Um, it's just we found it pretty easy to to find LGBTQ friendly spaces. I don't know what it was like. I'm I'm 44. I don't know what it was like uh, a decade or even two decades ago. But I think these days um, there is an abundance of places, even in the South, um, for you to find community on the road. So that that said and acknowledged, there's still plenty of discrimination and racism throughout the South. And when you got to pee, you got to pee. When your <laughs> tank is at 
uh, E or that light kicks on, you need fuel. Mm-hmm. Are, are there times where you have gone into a service station, taken a break at a park or a, an exit, uh, uh, just a, a, a stop on the highway, wherever, uh, and you've had to, I don't want to say conceal, but maybe that is the best word, conceal who you are, conceal who your, your wife is, because this is still the South and we're still talking about a queer couple? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think in the beginning when we were first starting out, um, we would be a little bit more, um, I don't want to say reckless, but just maybe not aware of some of the dynamics. And I think um, with the political climate being what it is and how it's changed over the last several years, people are just more brazen and open about things that they're willing to say or do. And so uh, we are way more cautious these days and we tend to honor the gut feeling that we have if something doesn't look or feel right. I mean, obviously certain signs like a Confederate flag is a very big symbol that's kind of like an alert and alarm for us. And so we honor those um, within ourselves. There is a way to pee within the van if you absolutely have to. So a gas station bathroom isn't always a necessity. And that's something that was born out of that desire to keep ourselves safe. I won't tell you what my dad did for my little brother as we travel across the country. Why not? Not stopping. We're not stopping. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I wanted to ask, you know, was there a guide for you to follow in your travels where ones would be safe. As I was traveling home to um, um, to Mobile, Alabama, one of my cousins told me, he's, you know, just try not to go to rest areas after a certain time. You know, mm-hmm. just just as a as a woman, did not think that I could I would be safe there. So I wonder um, if there's a any type of brochure or guide um, out there that you know for for couples like um, like you. Um, you know, in terms of guide, I think we just always go to Google. It's just the <laughs> biggest place, you know, it's just to see like what people are saying about things. And Instagram is actually really helpful just to see, you know, what pops up on there. Um, but at the time, like, because there wasn't really just a, like a central place to look for that kind of information when we were going into smaller places or, uh, one time we went to Amarillo, Texas, which is kind of the reddest part of the red estate. And, you know, we we're just like, well, how do you find something there without, you know, literally being like feet on the ground and finding out for yourself? Mm. Yes, yeah, so we've created a number of uh, LGBTQ friendly guides. And these are guides that, um, you know, will highlight a particular city. So say, for example, Greenville, South Carolina, we'll go there for a minimum of, say, 48 hours. Um, and while we're there, we'll find our list of what we consider to be the best places to eat, um, the best things to do, some of the best trails. So like outdoors things. And uh, just places of curiosity that might inspire or interest our, our readers. Um, it almost always includes a coffee shop, a record shop, um, some breweries, uh, trails, and, um, you know, places that are also gay owned. So trying to, you know, create pieces for the community that also have uh, representation of ownership within our community. Um, it's just a passion project. We don't make any money off this one, but it's our way of giving back to the queer community. Um, we do some guides for Dapper Q, and that is a website that is a Black-owned website. It's based out of New York City, and we take up space there by writing for their travel vertical and uh, covering cities that um, they otherwise might not be able to get to. So we do a little bit for ourselves, and we do some for them, too. Leonita and I are chatting with Erin McGrady. She uh, has spent years living in uh, a van. She's you're, Just to be clear, you're no longer living in the van, but you spent several years living um, in a van traveling across the South, documenting uh, this journey 
And I'd love, if, if you're open to it, to chat a little bit about the monetization of this and the ability for you to make money to some degree uh, by building a social media following and sharing your stories and your experiences with others. Uh, were you really able to make a living uh, on this this van life lifestyle? Uh, yeah, we were. It didn't start out like in the beginning. Um, my wife had mm -hmm. owned a donut shop called Whole Donuts in Asheville, which she sold um, not too long after we got together. And I'd been a teacher for 10 years. So I had some saved up. Um, so we lived off that in the beginning and we just basically took any assignment that we could that was writing or photography or content creation um, in an effort to just get started and build a portfolio. And then um, I think things really started to take off for us um, after about two or three years to where um, people knew that we were going to hit our deadlines. We were going to get things done um, and they were going to be done well and to where the work started to feel more steady and um we could kind of relax a little bit as, as opposed to feeling just really stressed out about how we were going to do this. Um, but I'd also had the, the great fortune to have a really big break and that um, when I first moved to Asheville, a friend of mine who knew I was looking for work um, sent me this Facebook message telling me about uh, a Find Your Park expedition that the National Park Foundation was putting on. And so just on a, a whim, I decided to submit an application, which included an essay and a photograph. Um, mm. explaining why I love the parks and they actually ended up choosing me. So I was one of six people to go out to the West Coast and explore San Francisco and Yosemite um, on a 10-day expedition. And I met these people who were doing this, this lifestyle, which was basically like travel, writing, and photography. And I didn't actually know that that was a thing to the extent that they were doing it. Like I didn't know that um, you could kind of make a go of it blogging and doing social media until I was out there. And then I saw people doing it and it just kind of blew my mind open to the possibility. So I came home and I told my wife, like, I would really like to give this a try, you know, like let's marry our passions of travel. But we had a leg up because one of the guys that was out there on the trip with me, he offered me a six month job mm -hmm. um, to come work for him and kind of learn the tools of the trade. I said, I would totally do it, but only if uh, my wife and I can do it together. Like, mm. can we be a package deal? And he said yes, because his wife uh, also worked with him. And so we had like a crash course in basically all things travel, yeah. adventure, writing, photography, video. Um, and then after that six months were over, we started freelancing and, and trying to make a go of it ourselves with our own business. And uh, some of the partnerships you you have, REI, Brooks, uh, Running Shoes, uh, Patagonia. What are you doing for them? Is it is it an advertisement? Is it uh, you know? Are you highlighting the best of a certain place? What kinds of things do you generate? Hmm. Uh, some of the partnerships, like the ones you mentioned, they're just like one off partnerships where you create a piece of content for the, for the brand, um, whether it's highlighting something that's important to them in their in their content. Last year, we worked with Coleman. It was all part of their Coleman Collective team, and then Merrill as part of their Merrill Hiking Club. And so for the whole year, you're basically working on these different themes to share about your love for the outdoors and engage the people that are uh, following you on your journey um, and finding ways to connect with them. Um, and, you know, at the same time, sharing about products that help you um, access the outdoors with those things. Well, this seems like it's been quite exciting and rewarding. Uh, but did did people, friends and family tell you, no, don't do this? I mean, did, did they just think you were crazy, you know, to give up um, the life you had before this van life? Yeah, my parents in particular were very nervous that I was like head over heels in love and making bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, because I really quickly, within a couple months of meeting Caroline, like we just knew right away that we wanted to do this and we wanted to be together and the long distance thing, though it was cool, it just wasn't sustainable. And so, um, and then to say that like, well, I wasn't going back into teaching, but I'm going to do this other thing, um, I think really left people kind of with their heads on a swivel. And to be honest, like it felt like that to, to me as well. Um, just like a lot of change in, in a very short amount of time, um, and I look back at it now, I'm like, you know, I, I don't know that I could ever do that again. It was, it was intense. And, um, and your parents are cool with it now or cooler? Yeah, they are. They're very yeah, supportive. Okay, I think okay. that having them see the success that, of our business and realize that I'm not actually going to move, be moving back in at 44, I think <laughs> has helped ease some of the pain of um, them seeing me throw away what is considered a stable career. Erin McGrady is a videographer, photographer, and writer. She and her wife, Caroline Watley, Work with brands and blog about their life on Instagram as well as their website, Authentic Asheville. Erin, thanks for chatting with us here on Do South. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. This is Do South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. And I'm Leonita Inge. Join us each weekday at 10 a.m. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.